Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Focus on Albany. I'm Cynthia Poor. My guest today is Kevin Lynch. Kevin is the son of the famed editor of the Times Union, the late Don uh, Dan Lynch, and he's the brother of Kelly Lynch, who is on WGY. And Kevin has written a book called Tabloid Baby, and it's a fiction, a book of fiction, but it talks a lot about um, the media today or newspapers today. So, Kevin, did you have fun writing it? Yeah, labor of love, I'd say. I mean, I'm not a full-time writer. Um, I did this on my downtime. I'd always kind of wanted to write a book, uh, kind of a bucket list sort of thing. Um, so I actually mm-hmm. found the time earlier, early last year to uh, actually sit down and, and finally finish it. So it was once I got going, it wasn't very difficult. I think I finished it cover to cover in about four months. So you had this idea in your head for a while? Yeah, I was uh, when I, I used to be a reporter for the National Enquirer myself, and while I was traveling around um, working on some celebrity stories around the country, I kind of was staying up late in hotels all night, and just this idea of this reporter, you know, traveling around working on stories was something that I thought was interesting. And my lifestyle at the time I thought was interesting, and I thought, why not write a story mm-hmm. about it? So while I was living that life, I kind of had this, this idea, and when I finally sat down to write it, all the information was kind of right there in front of me. So over the years, I mean, your formative years when your, your father was the editor of the Times Union, um, newspapers have changed substantially. Media has changed substantially, and a large part, part of the way people get their news is through the internet. So does that figure into into your book at all? The transformation from, you know, hard copy newspapers to online stuff? A little bit. I mean I I essentially the book is uh, it's about a small town newspaper reporter from Aspen, Colorado that gets sent to Florida to investigate you know, the, uh, the well-being of a socialite after her celebrity father dies. And that's the basic setup. But underneath mm-hmm. that, uh, there's some subtle commentary there about the newspaper industry as a whole, as I see it anyway, mm-hmm. um, what it's like to cover, you know, frivolous, irrelevant, you know, news. Because uh, now when it comes to news coverage, I think the line's been pretty blurred when it comes to what's actually newsworthy, when you can basically toggle yourself between what's happening in Texas right now and then mm-hmm. go directly to the next segment, which is the physical appearance of the president's German shepherd. And somehow these are both supposed to be equally as important in the media. So mm-hmm. what, what's news? Like a lot of what's in my book is what really is news is, is a celebrity death 
really as important as some other social issues? Does that warrant all of that coverage when someone famous dies? So I've just, even when I was working for the Inquirer, one of the things that kind of soured me on the industry after the initial, you know, fun I had with it was I really just stopped caring what I was writing about. Uh, And that comes across in the book. The main character in the book is covering something that he doesn't find to be newsworthy, but he's being paid to cover this story. And I felt the same way when I worked for the Inquirer and I would get these assignments. You know, I'd, I'd get sent to South Beach in Miami to follow around Britney Spears for a weekend. And she would do nothing but lay by the pool and go to the spa. And we would try to come up with some story, um, you know, and there was no story half the time. It was just Britney mm-hmm. Spears getting a suntan on, on South Beach. And I just got to the point where I just stopped really caring um, about what they thought was important. And I guess in a lot of ways, that's what news is now with TMZ and all the online internet entertainment um, medium. It's just, it's a lot of nonsense out there. It's hard to weed through it. The other thing is uh, it's it's almost impossible to hold the story anymore. Um, You know, daily newspapers used to have to wait until the morning. You know, as you mentioned, I grew up in a newspaper family. So, you know, we'd wake up, the newspaper would be on our front porch, and that's how you got your news. Now, before the paper gets delivered, you can go on your phone. And all the headlines are there. It's almost impossible for good investigative journalists to hold the story without it breaking in a 24-hour news cycle. Right. Now, you know, you grew up with your father writing uh, really good stories. I used to read them every time he would write something. Do you think this is the dumbing down of America and it's deliberate? So people will not be inquisitive about what's really going on. What do you think? I definitely agree with the dumbing down as far as, like I said, as far as what is actually news. Now, you can watch, like I said, you watch the news today and it's all of this tragedy that's occurring in Texas. And then you change the channel and the next news channel is telling you that the president's dog looks disheveled. And it's like, well, what's the news story? Why are you leading with this story instead of what you know, might actually be important? Uh, I mean, it's, it's funny that you say that also because the AP, when you, when, if you write for the Associated Press, they tell you to write at an eighth grade level. You know, you keep it at an eighth grade level so that way everyone can read it. You know, try not to shoot over the reader's head. Um, in the tabloids, when I started working there, they, killed, they told me to keep it at a sixth grade level. So in what? my book, I actually dumbed yeah, I dumbed down the writing in my book even very specifically and deliberately using very short sentence structure to keep the reader's attention because not a lot of people read anymore. And we kind of live in this, uh, I'd rather see the movie generation. So I wanted to be able to keep my reader's interest. And one of the ways I tried to do that was to keep the sentences short, to keep the narrative linear and just start from the beginning and go straight to the end without any fancy flashbacks or, you know, narrative techniques. So, I mean, I almost mm-hmm. dumbed down my book itself just to be more consumable to the general public. Now, your book is fiction. And you just told me right before we started this show that you are interested in nonfiction. Would nonfiction have the same quality where it was at a certain grade level? Or would you cater to a person's intellect? It depends on what kind of nonfiction. If you're going to be writing about, you know, NASA or the moon landing or something like along those lines, there's a lot of technical jargon you'd probably have to write about. But 
The nonfiction that I'm interested in is more true crime, which is popular. Um, you know, all those documentaries on Netflix are well watched. It seems like true crime is very, very hot right now. So that's kind of the direction I'm leaning towards. I might, my next project might be something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's a little bit more involved because there's much more research. I mean, fiction is fiction. It's off the top of your head. You can make it up. You know, true, you know, nonfiction or true crime, you have to stick with the facts. So you can only dumb it down so much because it's just the, the, the facts are the facts. Now, I remember one time your father had said that the uh, National Enquirer, Enquirer wrote stories that should be in a regular newspaper, that it was that factual and it was that important. Would you agree? To an extent. I mean, I covered a lot of events uh, early. I was involved in... Um, you know, when Enron, the entire Enron Corporation collapsed, they sent me to Houston to cover that story for three weeks, um, myself and another reporter. And that was real journalism. I mean, we were, in, we were there. We had a list of employees. We called hundreds of people that lost their pensions and interviewed them all. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, got a lot of news out, we got a lot of news out of that. Uh, after I left the Enquirer, obviously they were the um, – they were the newspaper that broke the John Edwards scandal and ultimately sank his political career. But while they were reporting mm-hmm. on that, I was still friendly with some of the guys that worked there. And, you know, the Washington Post knew about it, and they weren't touching the story because they didn't think it was true. After the Enquirer ran, I think, consecutive cover stories, they started sniffing around, and they were late. They didn't believe the Enquirer, and the Enquirer was actually nominated for a Pulitzer Prize after that. Wow. So they do have so what, incredible reporters so what, that work there. They, they truly do. So what years did you work at the Inquirer? I was actually hired when I lived in Los Angeles. After college, I moved to L.A., and I was actually hired on Valentine's Day of 2000. Um, I remember the okay. phone call. I'd already interviewed earlier in the week, and I remember getting the call from the, uh, the Los Angeles bureau chief for the West Coast editor, and they offered me the job. I mean, I, I, that's not originally why I moved to L.A., but that was the job that, that was the first job after college that popped up, and they mm-hmm. sold me on it. And so I worked in L.A. for a while, and then um, they, they, I actually asked for a transfer to Florida. Uh, they sent me to Florida, where they, they were headquartered here in, uh, in Lantana, Florida. That's where uh, the founder, uh, Generoso Pope, Gene Pope, you know, moved from New York. Well, it was the New York Inquirer. He moved down to Florida. So their headquarters mm-hmm. was legendary in Lantana. So I came to visit for some training and to meet the staff. And I just fell in love with South Florida, and I really didn't like L.A. So I got back to L.A. I kind of forced the transfer and got sent to, uh, to uh, Florida, worked here for a couple years. And then they asked me to move out to Las Vegas and open up a branch of the Enquirer out there because they didn't – at the time, there was no full-time – inquire a reporter in Vegas and a lot happened there. They felt they were missing. So they sent me out there by myself. I covered Vegas for another couple of years and then ended up leaving the tabloids altogether. But all said and done, I think I worked there for about four and a half years. So you were in Florida when the anthrax uh, situation happened, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. 
tell us a little bit about that. I was, uh, we had, so the original office in Lantana was a big, huge, you know, looked like a college campus, very big building, but it was old. It was falling apart. And when the new owners came in, they, um, it wasn't fancy enough for these New Yorkers, you know, the New York city, Manhattan publishers. So they had this beautiful building built in Boca. Boca Raton is a much more, you know, upmarket area than Lantana. And it kind of fit their MO a little bit. So they had this huge, I think it was a three-level building with an underground parking garage, beautiful building, National Enquirer logos everywhere, Star Magazine. You know, it was, it was nice. Flat screen TVs, really beautiful newsroom. And, uh, you know, shortly after we moved to that building, 9-11 happened. And that became a huge story for us because a lot of the um, terrorists that flew the planes learned to fly at flight schools right here in Palm Beach County. And some of the uh, editors in the Enquirer owned rental properties. And some of these guys that were responsible for crashing the planes rented from them. So some of the National Enquirer editors inadvertently had rented apartments to the terrorists. So we were covering this you know, as legitimate news. I mean, I, I remember watching 9-11 on, on TV right when I got to work that morning. I got to work just as the second tower hit. I got off the elevator, walked into the newsroom. Everybody was standing up, staring at the TVs as to what's going on. I looked up at the television, and the second plane hit. And I remember that day, like, the National Enquirer went deadly serious. You know, I think the big story working on at the time was uh, Gary Condit, and uh, Chandra Levy was his intern that went missing. And that was a great story, yep. even though ultimately Gary Condit had, Gary Condit had nothing to do <laughs> with it, ultimately. Um, I remember when 9-11 was happening, actually the only person happy right now is Gary Condit because we're not going to cover him anymore. So we were in the middle of covering 9-11 when the anthrax thing happened. And an editor by the name of Bob Stevens, uh, a photo editor, opened up uh, an envelope that was addressed to, you know, Star Magazine, something, something, photo department. I think it said pictures of Jennifer Lopez on it. He opened it up. And there was a white powder inside the envelope. He thought nothing of it, and he discarded it. And I guess he went on a hunting trip or a camping trip or something that weekend up north. And when he came back, he was sick. So I got called into my editor's office, I think, that Monday. And they said, we need you to go over to Bob Stevens' house, find out what's going on. We know he's sick, and we heard it's anthrax. And I'm thinking to myself, anthrax? I mean, isn't that like a cow disease? I mean, isn't that... It's not hard to get. I'm like, well, yeah, he was camping or something. Maybe he got it. We don't know. Just go to his house and see what's going on. So I got to the house, and when I pulled up out front of his house, I think he was in Boynton Beach, there was news crews everywhere. CNN was there. The towers were up. The vans were all there. And so I thought, wow. okay, something's going on. So I called back to the office, and they said, just go home. Bob Stevens has passed away. He's dead. Go home. Wow. So I went home. And then I got a call a little bit later in the evening, and they said, uh, look, don't come to work tomorrow. Um, they found anthrax in the building. So we're all being evacuated right now. Just don't come to work tomorrow. We're going to work remote. We'll call you. Half hour later, I get a phone call. Never mind. Um, don't not come to work tomorrow. Instead, go to um, – the medical department in Boynton Beach go to get, we all have to get tested for anthrax. 
So I barely slept that night, woke up in the morning, <laughs> showed up at the, medic, at the health department where we all had to get tested. And now the, the, the irony here is the news crew is now there trying to film an interview us with the National Enquirer. So we're usually the ones that are asking the questions and snapping pictures, <laughs> and now we're the ones lined up at the health department waiting in line to take these ant- to get the anthrax test results back, and now we're being harassed mm-hmm. by the press. So it was crazy. Um, they put us all on ciproflaxin or doxycycline. I think – I mean, Bob was the only one that passed away. Our, um, our mailroom clerk got very sick. Um, he pulled through, and I think there were some lingering effects that people had from the medication, but the only fatality was Bob and um, – it was just scary because I don't think we got our test results back for a few days. And anybody who had been in the building the week prior had to take the antibiotics. And uh, well, a good friend of mine came to visit me for lunch one day. And, you know, he'd only been in that office that one time. He saw my, my cubicle. You know, we talked for a second, went out to lunch. I had to call him and tell him he had to get on Ciproflex. And so it was a very, very strange time indeed. Um, it was pretty scary, you know, to be honest. You were on Cipro for a while, weren't you? Yeah, I was. I I think I took it for maybe three or four weeks, but I started having uh, not side effects. I didn't like the way it made me feel. I started after a long time being on it. I started just feeling weird, so they switched me to doxycycline, and it was fine. And mm-hmm. I was I realized that if I had at that point, if I had anthrax. I would know it. I, I kind of researched how long I needed to be on this medication and how mm-hmm. long I had if I actually had anthrax. So I think I stopped taking it before it was recommended I stopped taking it, but it, ultimately I had no symptoms. I was fine. So um, was, was National Enquirer your only writing gig? Did you ever work for another newspaper or – Radio, TV, well, I started, I started out at my college newspaper, actually. Um, you know, I was a film critic, you know, and I wrote some local band reviews, and I did live music and stuff like that. And I really wanted to be a – I wanted to be Roger Ebert. I wanted to be a film critic. That's what I really wanted to do. <laughs> I really loved movies. I liked writing about them. And I thought that would be a great job. Ultimately, you know, there's thousands of journalists in the country. There's only a handful of major news, uh, major film critics, you know. So if uh-huh. all those jobs weren't hanging on trees, it wasn't very low-hanging fruit. Uh, so I got an internship at Premier Magazine, which was in Manhattan, and it was an unbelievable opportunity. I went from Colorado, where I was going to college at the time, to Manhattan, which was, you know, you go from this mountain town to the big city, and it was just a huge opportunity for me, and I loved it. Premier Magazine was so much fun. It was a glossy magazine. I got to write. I got to transcribe interviews with all these celebrities. I got to go to movie premieres and meet all these famous people. So it was a lot of fun. Um, So I had Premiere Magazine. I had my clips. Um, I had my clips in my college newspaper. And then when I got back from my senior year of college after the internship, I started freelancing for the local paper, which was the Durango Herald. And so Mm -hmm. I was simultaneously writing for my college paper and then the local daily. Um, my big, my big story with the Durango paper was um, the Robbie Krieger band came to town. Robbie Krieger was the guitar player for the Doors. And so I got to interview him, and I'm a big Doors fan. So I got to sit there in a room with this guy and listen to him tell me all these stories about 
Jim Morrison and the crazy times they had. You know, that was my first mm-hmm. like celebrity interview on my own that I that I lined up. And so when mm-hmm. I got to uh, when I graduated, I figured if I want to write about movies, I might as well go where the movies get made. So I ended up moving to Los Angeles, and I landed in L.A. with not a lot of money, <laughs> and uh, the cost of living is very high. And I was kind of freelancing. I think I had a couple stories. I think the Long Beach Press Telegram gave me an assignment. They sent me to the opening of a mental hospital, which turned into a very strange story. I thought the editor gave it to me as a joke. Um, like send the new guy to a mental hospital and see what he comes back with, which, you know, if I was an editor, I'd probably pull something like that too. Um, so I had some clips and, uh, and I saw an ad in uh, editor and publisher for the National Enquirer. And I thought, why not? And so mm-hmm. I had some clips. I guess to answer your question, I had written I had written a little bit, but the National Enquirer was the first, you know, full time paid opportunity at a newspaper or a magazine. I had my clips and I had some freelance work under my belt, but that was the first paper that, you know, gave me a full time job. Did you ever write for the Times Union? <laughs> no. I, my, I, my picture was in the Times Union, I think. Uh, there was a St. Patrick's Day parade in the early 80s, and uh, somehow my, my mom or my dad, someone got, got me involved with carrying the banner in front of the parade. I think I was maybe six, five or six years old, and it was freezing, and I was miserable. And there was our picture you know, in the Times Union of me carrying this banner, like tears streaming down my face, completely miserable at this parade. So I never wrote for the mm-hmm. Times Union, but I did have my picture in the Times Union. Wow, that's funny. So um, you, you've you always, the the love of, of journalism and writing never left you, right? I, it was something I grew up with. I mean, when I, when I got my job at the Inquirer and I was hanging out with all these old timers, and that's the way it was at the Inquirer. Half of the staff, were the old school Fleet Street London tabloid reporters that came over here because of the weather and because Gene Pope, who was the brainchild of the Inquirer, he knew that the good stories came out of Fleet Street. So he poached a bunch of those guys to come over here. And in the 70s and the 80s, that was who the National Inquirer was, was a bunch of guys from London. Then a bunch of the New Yorkers from the Post and the Daily News, these older guys started contemplating retirement and they figured, you know what, we'll go down to Florida right before retirement, and we can still work for a few years. Inquire pays well. So we had a bunch of these guys down here that were my dad's age. So when I got hired, you know, I was in my 20s, but I was working with these guys that had been in journalism for 30 years, these guys in their early 60s. And I was palling around with them. They took me under their wing, and they, kept, they knew who my father was, and they would say things like, you've got ink in your blood, son. You've got ink in your blood. And that was what they always mm-hmm. say to me at the paper. So I just, I kind of feel like I grew up in the business, you know, mm-hmm. I delivered the newspaper my dad edited. So it's like I was a paper boy at a young age. So I just Uh-oh. felt like it was always part of, part of my identity was the newspaper business. It just felt like, it felt right mm-hmm. to me. Um, so it wasn't something I set out to do. You know, I didn't, I didn't look at my dad's job and think that's what I want to do when I grow up. It's just something that mm-hmm. happened to me while I was in college and started writing. It's just something that, I just I something that I was good at, you know. Uh-huh. So it's in your genes. What's that? It's in your genes. 
Yes. Yeah, right? absolutely. Like I said, I grew up, I have ink in my blood. It's something that uh, I couldn't escape, I guess. And now, I just remember, you're... though, when my father realized, when my father realized I was going into journalism, I'll never forget this. He said, this is the, you know, this is in the late 90s. And the internet, you know, when I declared my major finally, and I, I was, you know, I got the mindset that this is what I was going to do. I remember having conversations with him where he said, you know, you missed the boat, you know, journalism is not what it was. It's not going to be what it was. The days of Watergate and Hunter S. Thompson, that those days right. are gone. You know, you can get into this industry, but it is changing. You know, advertising has taken over editorial content. Like the industry is changing. So you're going to get into this at a time when I'm getting out. And I'm telling you from experience, I can tell I have the foresight that the industry is not going to be what you, what you, what you grew up watching me do. And he was right. You know, the industry completely went south. That's true. And and your sister, she, uh, she does journalism, but she does it on the radio, right? Yeah, she's a broadcast journalist, and that's that was funny. I think at one point, all three of us were were in the media, and it was funny because my dad was more of the straight news guy, straight print. You know, Kelly was the broadcast and television, and I was the tabloid. Mm-hmm. So like we were kind of hitting all angles. You know, it was kind of funny that we all we all were in the same industry, but we all had our own little niche within that industry. So, you know, now that you look back and you're not in journalism anymore, your father was correct in saying it's changed starting, you know, in in the early 2000s, right? Absolutely. It's just not, Mm -hmm. it's not what it was. Um, I mean, people don't even read the paper anymore. The internet, like I said, I, I mean... I'm one of the last people. I still buy the New York Post from time to time just because I, I, I still want to get ink on my fingers. I still want to smell the paper. I still want to feel something tangible. And I thought I was I would be the last person to stop reading the newspaper. And I still get it from time mm-hmm. to time. But when I, work, when I wake up in the morning, I get my headlines on my phone. I mean, the first thing I do is just check the news, and it's right there next to my bed on my phone. You know, it's just disappointing that – I am fine. I, I, of all people, I, I'm finding that person that just, you know, I accepted the fact that the newspaper wasn't going to be some part of my everyday life anymore because it had been for so long. So, do you ever check the headlines uh, for the Times Union? Yeah, from time to time I do. Um, you know, I'm not as connected to Albany. I still, obviously, my family still lives there, and I have a lot of friends in the area, but I don't return home. That's the one thing about living in Florida. As much as I'd like to go home for Christmas, everybody up north wants to come here for Christmas because it's freezing up there. So that's the one thing. Like, I don't get home as often as I'd like. Everybody wants to come see me. So mm-hmm. I don't follow the news as often. Um, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll listen to my sister's program on the radio, um, and mm-hmm. I'll glance the times you need headlines, you know, especially if there's like, something happening in sports. Like every once in a while, Seattle basketball will do well. Um, so I'll start to pay attention to that if they're in the tournament. So, yeah, I, I, I do pay attention to some news up there, but I'm more of a headline news person at this point. So, uh, Kevin, we're, we're just about out of time. So give yourself a plug and, and plug your book so people will know how to buy it. <laughs> on Amazon. 
Um, the plug for my book, I mean, it's, it's a quick read. Uh, it's, it's a fictional book. It's about a newspaper reporter. Like I said, he's a small-town Aspen, Colorado newspaper reporter that's been covering local music. And he gets this opportunity um, because this uh, Aspen socialite, um, a kind of a fictionalized version of Aaron Spelling, old TV producer, dies in Florida. But he's very well known in Aspen because he owns properties there. And it turns out that his only heir, the only surviving family member he has, is a daughter that he had with a famous actress um, who had OD'd and died years earlier. So she's in Florida, and they don't know what she's doing, but they find out that she's going to um, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. So they send this guy to Florida to find out what's going on with her and what's going to happen to the you know, millions and millions of dollars that she's about to inherit. And that's kind of the setup um, for the story. Like I said, there's some underlying commentary about the newspaper industry as a whole, but okay. ultimately it's just about a, a reporter that gets sent on the story and you know, it, it, it's based on some some experiences that I had because he gets fairly close to close to his sources. And when I worked for the Inquirer, there were many times that I got closer to the source on the story than I probably should have. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that was that's that's that plays out in the book quite a bit. Okay, so you have been listening to Kevin Lynch. I'm Cynthia Pooler. This is Focus on Albany. If you like this show, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. And Kevin's book is called Tabloid's Baby. That, thanks, thanks, Kevin, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a great day. Thanks for having me, Cynthia. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.